What it do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on my good friend, Stephen Fielding. I first met Stephen through the Fiffer Service Mastermind. And the really interesting thing that I noticed is that Stephen is the first person that I have met in my life that feels like he has father energy towards me and that I feel safe to allow that energy into my life. Most of the men that I've ever met in my life, they either feel like uh, younger brothers, actual brothers, or older brothers. I met Don Howard, and Don Howard felt like a grandfather. But Stephen is the first person that has put that father energy into my life in a way that I felt like I could receive it outside of my actual father. And I think that that's one of his gifts. Um, He's been holding space in men's groups uh, for a long time. And he's actually incredibly gifted at orchestrating essentially communal experiences. And this podcast was recorded the day after he had just led a men's retreat. Uh, And so he was deep in that energy. And also, the end of this podcast is um, one of the most profound emotional moments that I've ever had on any podcast. And I'll let you guys see what it's about, but it brought me to tears to the point where I had to stop the podcast. And the gift that he gave me is now in the middle of my altar and it might be the most prized possession that I have in my life. So I invite you to relax and enjoy the beautiful story that he brings and to uh, feel and experience the moment that comes at the end of this podcast. If you want to support what I'm doing, uh, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. One is share this podcast with someone that you think it would benefit. Uh, Leave a rating and a review on iTunes if you feel called to do something like that. Uh, You can check out my newsletter. I send out one every Friday. It's called Feasting Friday, and that's going to be found at ericgotzi.com. And I also have a journaling course that if you want to learn how I journal, uh, you can check that out. Hundreds of people have bought it. I haven't had a single person ask for a refund so far, so it feels like it's actually helping and doing what we're hoping it does. And as always, thank you so much for your time and for your attention. There's so many places that you could be given it, and I deeply appreciate that you're bringing it here. I hope it helps. I hope you enjoy. With all the love in my heart, Thank you. Stephen Fielding, welcome to the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, I first met you through Fit for Service, Mm -hmm. and you were one of the uh, only people in Fit for Service where I felt specifically a call to you as father energy. Mm. And there's very few people in my life that I've actually have felt like that they could hold father energy towards me for me you know, because I didn't have a particularly pristine relationship with my father. Mm. Um, and then once I got to talk to you more about like what your path has been that has brought you to fit for service and then what your expertise are and how, you know, you're like the Liam Neeson of fit for servicing where you have a very particular set of skills that make you very good at this uh, particular thing. And we'll for sure get into that. 
Um, the question that I like to start the podcast with so the listeners can begin to get an understanding of who they're listening to is, um, how would your best friend describe you and what you do in the world? Mm. Well, I'm lucky enough to have a handful of best friends. Um, but the one who I would call out here would be Derek, Derek Mitchell. And he and I have go way back to boarding school when we were 14 years old. So he's probably known me the longest. And he would probably describe me as very loving, huge heart, open to new ideas and perspectives, accepting of people as they are. Um, and, and what would he say you do? Well, he knows I'm in marketing communications and I'm a storyteller. That's probably what he would say. How would your romantic partner describe you and what you do? Well, she's sitting right behind me in the, in the room here. So if you hear a cackle from her, then <laughs> I'm probably on the, on the mark. Um, what I do. What would Deb say I do? She would say I'm a talisman. That I provide an object or an experience which becomes a touchstone for them to understand their place in the world or their experience in life. How would your mother describe you and what you do? She, I mean, I'm, a, I'm the oldest child of three, the only son. I have two younger sisters. I was the firstborn grandson. So to her, I'm, you know, she's more Jewish than most Jewish mothers. And she's <laughs> Roman Catholic by, by training. But uh, By training, yeah. I love that. So <laughs> she, uh, she would say, oh, he's a very special boy. Yeah. Yeah. So. And how would she describe what you do? Like if somebody asked her what her son does, what would she say? She knows me from like the corporate work. So she knows me as a storyteller, marketing. Um, and in more recent years, I've spent a lot of time supporting entrepreneurs and small business owners and working with some pretty big, big brands in terms of the small business um, world uh, in presenting those brands to the entrepreneurial community in surprising ways. So she knows I, I love small business and local businesses. And then within that veteran owned businesses and women owned businesses, you know, they're, they're so important. How would your father describe you and what you do? Hmm. Very, I mean, similar, I mean, storyteller, marketing, um, in the more family oriented role. I mean, Deb overheard him saying that I'm the all provider. Because I take care of the family in terms of um, my sisters, making sure that they're okay, attention to my parents, attention to my cousins, attention to my two sons. Um, so he would say that uh, I care deeply um, for what I do and who I be for them. And the thing that we try to capture inside the word God or universe. How would that thing describe the ego function of Stephen and what he's doing? 
So not your oversoul where you're all love and eternity and all the beautiful things, but the ego. Like, what is the dharma of Stephen? What would that thing say? Probably say I'm too humble. Um, that uh, my experience of that is kind of a late bloomer in terms of acknowledging strengths and um, capacity to offer and having the confidence to do that. So they probably would probably say, you know, hurry up and figure it out. Be big. Yeah, be bigger. Like, yeah, go bigger. What do you recall as your first memory? Hmm. I'd have to go back to... I'd have to call a distinguish, you know, a distinguishing component of that is actually the first time I did holotropic breath work. Mm. I recollected a very, very early memory, which was seemed like more of a sensation than an actual memory. And but you want me to actual like actual memory. What's interesting, and this is a great thing to articulate for people, is so most of us. Uh, our cognitive architecture in the prefrontal cortex gets dense enough where we eventually start having like an experience of self that can be remembered episodically mm -hmm. at like age three. Most people's earliest memories don't go earlier than age three, unless what I've found, because I've asked this to, you know, a couple hundred people, ayahuasca, holotropic breath work. And those are the two examples where people get a memory pre three mm -hmm. and it's almost never like, oh, I see an image unless they saw a picture or something, but it's almost always a sensation, like a raw sensation. So I would actually love to hear both, okay. like the pre-three sensation and then the first like episodic, like, okay, I'm a boy and it's my birthday or whatever it is. Yeah, that actually brings up a memory. Um, the, the sensation that I recalled was, it felt like it was a blanket that I, I had in the crib. And you know how when you sort of fall asleep on something that has a texture to it, that you wake up with an imprint on your mm. face? Well, that was kind of the sensation on my Interesting. cheek. Interesting. And how old, and just from your intuition, do you feel like that's from? Mm, less than a year old. Wow. Yeah. Early, early. Mm. And then earliest memories, probably, um, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm from abroad, uh, born and raised in London. So uh, I remember in my parents, one of my parents' first homes, and I still have the coffee table uh, in my apartment now. Wow. And I would clear it off and I would slide, I would hold on to the end and I would slide myself back and forth. And then I would like throw myself off the end of the table, you know, sliding down on a sled kind of, kind of sensation. What was the emotion that was coupled with that? Was it freedom? Was it excitement? Was it creativity? Like what was kind of the core emotion that was attached to that action, that memory? A little excitement. I think it was like, a, I'm going to go off the edge of this table. Yeah. You know, and sliding back and forth, getting ready to do that like a toboggan, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is what I find is like people's first episodic memory, the tone of that experience kind of sets the tone for their personality for like how they life. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that resonates, but that's just something to put a flag in. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite question to ask any human often comes up about this part, which is what do you remember as the first story that really captured your imagination as a child? 
could either be a story that was told to you by a parent, something that was read from a book. For most people, it might be a fucking movie. But what do you remember being the first story that really like captured you? Well, it was a series of books in England called Andy Pandy and kind of like the Mr. Men books. But it goes back even, you know, prior to that. Um, and so my mom reading me the Andy Pandy books. But in terms of a full-blown story that I've, I just loved and I would want to read it over and over again, it was actually uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Jason and, and the Argonauts. And so yeah. his missions and his yeah. challenges that he had to go through. Beautiful. Okay, so let's use that one as the example here. Um, what character in that story most resonated with you? Jason. How would you describe um, who and how Jason is? Like if you had to describe him to us, if we don't know the story, how would you describe the hero, Jason? Well, it's been a while since I read the story. And the so one, this makes it even better. Yeah. I'm not asking for like the technical correct answers, but like from the heart, like if you were around a campfire and we were a bunch of young kids and we're like, tell us a story. And it's not an exam. It's just like, okay, I'm going to take the archetype of Jason in my mind and then start just mm -hmm. teaching them about this hero. How would you describe Jason? Well, he was a leader of his band of brothers. And back in the day, they had to either row or sail their vessel across, you know, vast seas to, and they got accepted into challenges. And one of the ones that they had to do was uh, collect the golden fleece. And there's a challenge to find the ram. And then, well, how do you fleece the ram? And he doesn't want to let go of his fleece because it's very valuable. And ultimately, I can't remember the trick that they had to, you know, execute to harvest the fleece, but then brought it back in, you know, in victory and then went on the next mission, you know? Yeah. So it's these little tasks yeah. <laughs> that they go out and you have to figure it out, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I kind of had a little mission like that. We were at, you know, the house that we rented over the weekend here in Austin for the retreat. And as you know, it was pretty horrendous in terms of weather recently. Yeah. Once in a lifetime. The, there was a, just the smallest, you know, thinnest layer of ice and we had backed up the vehicle to unload the luggage because we didn't want to walk across the ice. Well, the next morning we hadn't moved the vehicle and there was just this thinnest layer of ice and I just slightest incline on the driveway and I, wheels spinning. And I had to find basically an item inside the house and found this, you know, the little rubber mats that you put on shelves. And I'm like, oh, I'll take this and throw it underneath the, under the mat. And it's, I think, think in terms of creative solution solving, you know, problem solving and finding solutions for those equations in life, you know, I think, you know, we can get into the topic of education and public school education and not having necessarily the most creative training, right. you know, the lateral critical thinking that you need these days, you know, and what's being called for is not being served by the public school system, but that's a whole nother conversation. So uh, we can get into that if you want later. What I love, I, I love it so much, is that when people explain whatever their favorite story is, the way they explain it, it's their motherfucking life. It's how they are in the world. And you intuitively went right into it. So one of the big things about Jason and the Argonauts, I say, mm -hmm. 
Um, he is the leader of other men. You do men's work. I thought that that was a beautiful <laughs> quote unquote coincidence of the favorite story. And then the fact that you intuitively moved into how that story archetypically and symbolically applied to just what you did the last week. Like, I think that, I don't know if I've ever like talked about this medally on the podcast, like to be meta about why I ask these questions, uh -huh. but I don't know if I was able to articulate it until now. But the reason I ask these questions is I think we are born with a part of us knowing what our best song to express in the world is. And I use the word Dharma to express that energy. It's not fate necessarily because you can choose to be an out of tune fucking instrument. Mm -hmm. Like it's like we're born with a potential song to sing. And there's this thing inside of us and I call it the daemon, but it's this thing that's constantly scanning the environment for any clues to help the stupid fucking ego that's just confused and lost how to come to that song. Mm -hmm. And I feel like one of the most powerful um, talismans that we've been given that we don't even know how to use are the stories that we were drawn to when we were children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, you mentioned the men's work and if I recall, Going back into my history, I mean, there was, I was at boarding school from 10 to wow. 13. And, you know, being in fit for service, I, I recall some of the trauma that was going on there, but yet it was based on wanting to be part of the crew, um, hadn't figured out how to set boundaries yet, was not much of a fighter, didn't, I avoided that kind of scene. And, um, you know, our headmaster was a former British army captain and wow. he kind of ran a tight ship, yeah. uh, which included, you know, polishing our shoes every Thursday night. And if I felt like there was something to offer the guys that to earn their, you know, appreciation or acceptance for a few, few days, it was, you know, to take on a couple of extra pairs of shoes and polish the shoes and be of service to them. But it was, you know, again, taken advantage of. And not until... It was the longest time. It was another funny side story in terms of um, finally figuring out a boundary that I wasn't willing to mm. let go. And, and years later, found a letter from the headmaster to my dad saying, I'm so glad to tell you that Stephen finally stuck out for himself. Wow. In my, in my files that he kept. And wow. they were waiting for me to basically, basically punch the bully on the nose and say back you know tell them to back off so can you tell that story because that letter must have been dated and so something happened around that date yeah i mean there was <clears throat> the last year that i spent at boarding school my parents had em already emigrated to the u.s so i was in london with my grandparents to go out on the weekends too so i was spending more time than not at school and then as soon as mom and dad left everybody knew you know oh, at the end of the year steve's off to us so i became different and toward the last term um there was one guy i was i had been given the privilege of what we called um uh what were they what called cubes so cubes were a semi-private sleeping space which had a desk in it and kept your belongings and i you know they would always come and mess my cube up and one kid told me well i'm going to 
you know, wake you up tomorrow with pouring water all over your face. I'm like, yeah, you try it. You know, I'd like to see you do that. And so sure enough, he did. So about 5.30 in the morning, I wake up to cold water being poured over my face. And I just, you know, pushed past him, went down to the bathroom, filled up half a five-gallon bucket of cold water from the sinks and walked back up to the cubes and got his attention and just doused him from head to toe. And then we got into a scuffle. And then the Irish, you know, um, matron, Miss McDonald, <laughs> caught us and put us outside the headmaster's office and uh, for fighting. And the headmaster called me in and asked me what had happened. And I recounted what had happened. And then he said, okay, you're dismissed. And he called the other boy in. And back then, you know, corporal punishment was a thing. So he got he got a beating from the headmaster. But I had also, you know, thrown a few punches at him and had basically got him um, to get back in, you know, back in his box, so to speak. And that was the impetus. That was the and that was out of character for you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things in hindsight that's so just makes me laugh out loud is like, I can feel how easy it is to read a 12 year old. Like they're not getting away with shit. And then to go back to like when I was 12 and like the teachers who could truly see like who the genuine and anyone who's not awesome as a kid is because they experienced trauma almost 100%. But the, the teachers can feel like they know who the bullies are they know who the genuine, like sweet, nice kids are. And it's, it's, it's just funny to feel like the headmaster knew, even before he called y'all in, who the asshole was and who the defendant was. Oh, yeah. And it's, it feels good to at least feel that you were in a system that would respond properly to the right action. Because I think what really fucks people is if the container, and this can happen in some like foster care systems mm -hmm. and stuff, because I know mm -hmm. some people like it's ran by corrupt people. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't respond the way that it should to right behavior. And then the kids basically internalize like right behavior doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And that can create really sick, broken patterns in people. But it's awesome that you were in an environment where the right behavior got rewarded. Yeah, he was, he was a no joke, you know, no nonsense kind of guy. Learned a ton. I mean, when you place a 10-year-old boy in the care of a headmaster like that, he becomes the father figure to you. Yeah. And, um, you know, he and I corresponded for a little while after, you know, I graduated high school and went off to university. And um, when I started sort of addressing some of the, you know, the hurts, you know, and trying to find a way to get past it or process it. What age would this be at? Um, to get reflective. When I was trying to get through that or try to address the hurts, I, it was yeah. like post-college. Like okay. I was in my mid-20s. And once again, you know, the old boys network uh, in terms of alumni to the school was pretty active. I mean, it's a school that leads, is a preparatory school up into Harrow, Eton, Epsom, mm. some of the highest, you know, public schools, which then go on to Oxford, Cambridge, you know, Durham, that kind of thing. So that was the the pipeline that we were involved with. And um, the, the, the means with which um, I wanted to figure out, like, I remember all their names, 
and I remember, you know, lots of things that happened at their hands. And the few phone calls that I was able to make and the connections I was able to make, they didn't even remember my name. Mm. And it just kind of underscored, you know, how, you know, we talk about forgiveness not being for the other person, it's for you. Yeah. And if I really had sort of better skills, and I'm still working on those forgiveness skills, because I, you know, I'm true to my nature, which is as a Scorpio, you hold on to, you know, hurts and, and the people who did you wrong and trying to minimize the resentment that I carry forward yeah. in any kind of uh, connection. But at Man. that time in life, I was just, you know, wrought with still stuff like I hadn't really gotten past the prep school stuff. And it kind I of repeat, yeah. I feel so heavy to feel it into, like you've done all the personal work to get to the point where you feel like you were prepared to make contact with the person that caused some type of abuse or trauma. You make the connection, which is one of the hardest things to say yes to as someone who's gone through something like this. And then to receive from them energetically that the event that has sh shaped your destiny is something they don't even fucking remember. Mm -hmm. And just feeling that as like a fuck this is not going to be healed by me getting the response that I want because it's not even possible. They don't even remember. I can feel that there would almost be some like God anger there for me. If I really felt like I was transgressed in a way that changed my life and then I go contact that person and they don't even remember. What did you do? Like how, how did you, I, it was just a time to accept it, mm -hmm. you know? And it was just the time to like, you know, it's a really good example of um, holding on to shit. It doesn't serve anybody. It only hurts the person who's carrying the weight. Yeah. So that seems so much easier said than done. Like it helps very, the people out, man. Cause I don't know how to do it. It, it. Sometimes you just learn the hard way. You know, you yeah. try, you go through that own experience. And the you, quote that comes to mind is, the solution to the pain is in the pain mm -hmm. by Rumi. And it's like, I'm going through some personal shit that I can feel like it doesn't matter what I read. It doesn't matter what conversations I have. I can feel that the parts of me that are hurt are only going to let it go when they finally have suffered enough. And there's a part of me that's like, I, I, I wish you would let go now, but I can feel that you're not. So we're going to hold on and buckle up. Mm -hmm. There's more pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mentioned a quote uh, over the weekend, a Jungian quote, which I'm sure you'll like, which is... I do. Yeah. Um, coming, coming to consciousness involves a lot of pain, is essentially the quote. So as you become more aware of, of how you are and how you be as a whole person, a healed person, you have to address the pain. Yeah. yeah. So there's no, no way but through. Yeah. So I'm curious, what was the first thing that you found that gave you a sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm catching the song of my dharma. You know, like for me, I thought it was basketball. Like when I was in high school, it's like, this is what I meant to do. I was wrong, but that was when I felt that for the first time. So I'm curious, what was the first thing that you found in life that really felt like, oh, this is what I'm made to do? That came after my, my first marriage. 
that fell apart. You know, I exited that. And what's the age that we're at right now? I was 32. Yeah, I got married when I was 29 and like 32 and a half, 33. And it was, uh, you know, I was living in San Francisco at the time and um, about 2001. And a good friend of mine said, you need to do, you know, this retreat. It really changed my perspective. Was this the first retreat of your life story? This I, was, yeah. I like these stories. Yeah. So it was the first retreat. And this is like Northern California. It was, you know, by a lot of people's, you know, uh, judgment of it, it would be like, oh, that's the woo-woo shit that you... Let's go. Yeah. What was it called? Where it's at? Yeah. Well, it's now no longer in existence, but it's sort of morphed into a different... I can mention that along the way. But yeah. uh, at the time, the retreat was organized by a group of friends who had created this uh, experience called the Arte Experience. And the Arte is a Greek word, which it basically essentially means excellence, your own personal excellence. Mm. So it's a, it's a commitment to discovering and revealing in community what your personal song is, what your Esto. excellence. Yeah. So you sort of... Um, A-R-T-E? A-R-E-T-E. And mm. uh, the weekend was like three days long. It's like a Thursday night to Sunday afternoon. And the um, process was really intense. And it's basically the, the core of it is when you stand or sit in front of 15 other humans, plus the course leaders who are adept at, you know, poking and prodding you and tearing back the layers of the onion and sort of generally and gently revealing uh, who you are really truly. So please paint me a picture because I'm so curious. Like when you sit down in that chair, what happened? For me, it was accepting me as the man that I am, which is, you know, there's a lot of uh, hurts around like expressing, you know, care and tenderness and, you know, concern for other humans. And, you know, it was met with, you know, a lot of hurts uh, along the way, you know polish shoes and then you get bullied you know the next week so it was hidden away right and then coming out of a marriage that was not exactly um you know the healthiest environment uh that kind of put another layer of armor around the heart yeah so then um as i got into that and i went through my ex my first retreat experience then they had a production team they had 15 people supporting 15 participants and wow. you know it was this container that they created and i noticed you know and observed you know how much they were getting out of it too and i was like okay mm. you know i want to give back to that experience i want to contribute and be part of the community and and dove into that and so that sort of led me on a path to becoming um the supervisor for the whole production team Wow. eventually and then wanting to do the course leader intensive training um which at that point you know was a different decision um in terms of pursue my dharma or create stability for a relationship to head into marriage and family and i chose the marriage and family path because that felt like a calling too like you've mentioned the father figure and father you know the fathering and husbanding were 
part of my cooling too, I feel yeah. like. So um, now, 20 years later, you know, termination of second marriage, but now I have two kids and I need to be the healthiest version of me as a man to be a contribution to my sons. Yeah. That is a higher priority to me than continuing down this path of having, you know, a big house and two cars and, right. a, you know, picket fence and a dog and, and whatnot. So I'm curious if you could articulate or if it even was like a major shift for you, but the moment that you go from being a man to father, like that moment of knowing, I have an intuition that it's going to be dramatic for me. Um, like that first moment where I know, and I, and I, I assume that there will be a linguistic moment where it'd be like, oh, wow, this is special. But then there's going to be that biological moment. And I'm just curious, did your conception of yourself or your story of yourself and your life radically transform when you went from man to father? Uh, and if so, how? And if not, why do you think that might be? I didn't notice a huge shift like and it wasn't a noticeable shift of gears for me it was just a more intense expression of caring and love for another human that was completely relying on me and their mom and you know you get the the first ultrasound it's kind of cool the first heartbeat is super cool but you really grok the impact that that human has on your life and who you are in the world when you see it, him or her take their first breath and cry out. Mm. And yeah, it was super special. And to have that happen to me twice, you know, there's no, you know, it's such a special moment. So I'm curious, what is the call now about the things that you are being drawn to do to be the most full expression of a father to show up for them? Like, what are you currently dancing with? In terms of my interest, getting back into the men's work or my own personal path? Uh, both. Fuck it. Okay. Why not? Have it all, right? Yeah. Yes, and, right? Oh, here we go. So, um, the commitment to be a best expression of myself for my boys i just there's a ha there's a happier space to be in i needed to i needed to present them you know a relationship which uh was just not um fraught with frustration tension you know, it got to a point where my, literally my nervous system would be on ed on edge anytime their mom and I were in the same room. And I was like, this is, you know, they're picking up on it. And I, you know, this is not, I'm going to have to take, I'm going to have to go through this tough shit and make the tough decision to um, create a better environment for, the, for them. I didn't go the best way about it or the most honorable way about it. Um, and that's a story for another day, but ultimately I feel like they have a better path, a better example of a, 
a man who's committed to self-excellence and being a positive force in the world and more contributory to a community, still love their mom, you know, still care for her. It's not being received in such a way right now, but you know, with the help of, of my current partner, she keeps on reminding me just love and light, keep on presenting yourself, be of service to her, you know, be accepting of where she's at and just be present and not, not resentful or resistant to how she is right now. So with that, I'm, I hold out hope that we can have a more collaborative, co-parenting, creative kind of uh, contribution to the two of them as a, their parents. That will never change. But in terms of our relating, it's still challenging. And then in terms of, there's just you know so many other men going through the same thing. And for me just to sit back and let that go by, wouldn't be true to my heart. Yeah. Um, There's a quote that comes up or a metaphor that Seth Godin shared. And it's, if you know how to do something, even if you're one step ahead of someone who's suffering and you don't help them, you're like a lifeguard mm-hmm. at a standing at the edge of a pool, watching someone drown. And you're essentially telling the people in the pool, I'm afraid to get in. And it's it's dramatic and I like dramatic shit because it gets my energy moving. Mm-hmm. But that's always deeply resonated with me. And I love that you can feel uh, that the suffering you've gone through, if shared, becomes the medicine for other people to suffer less. And it also reminds you of the insights that you learned. <laughs> I was talking with a friend. One of the things that we see a lot in, you know, like the coaching work is the people who are the hardest on themselves are the people who have rem- who have figured it out at some point and then forgot. And when they're in the stage of I have forgot, that they just beat themselves up. Mm-hmm. And one of the archetypical stages of the hero's journey is resurrection, stage 11. <clears throat> it's so common in the human psyche to forget that it literally gets its own motherfucking stage in the hero's journey. <clears throat> and the thing that we were talking about that felt like a whoa moment was if you commit to becoming of service and you teach whatever it is that was your suffering, and then you teach the medicine that you learned from your confronting the dragon moment, that's the best way to not forget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that um, continues to pop up is a little bit like, oh, really, do I have any credibility here? You know, is the, I was, mentioning it over the weekend that in any moment as a man, you can recommit to something or a series of things and be back in integrity with mm. what you're committed to. Yeah. So even if someone, you know, and it, lots of vitriolic things were spewed at me in terms of who I am and how I be and et cetera, et cetera, which had a whole lot of doubt. So I had to like really take a hard look at that, figure out, well, what am I willing to accept? What am I willing to say? That's a projection and tease that apart, address the things that I'm committed to and want to be in resonance with and not show up that way and be aware of the hurt that you, again, it goes back to the king archetype, which is, you know, you got to look at the shit, the the heavy stuff. So, and the mess and sort your kingdom out. So there's a quote that I just read today and I don't know if I'm going to get it right, but it's by, uh, uh, I don't, I don't remember who it's by, but it's something along the lines of not everything that you look at 
can be changed. But the only things that change are the things that you can look at. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, yes, I'm getting that tattooed on my heart because <laughs> I could not agree more. Yeah. There's a similar quote in terms of to achieve the things that you've never achieved before, you're going to have to do things you've never done before. Mm-hmm. And um, that's up in my garage workout area. I love that. So it's, yeah, I revert. I'm I'm a creature of comfort generally. and You're human? Yeah. <laughs> Me <I know>. too. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, oh, I can recede back in my shell and just yeah. do the, you know, the routine. But um, the the growth happens, the edge gets sharpened in the new stuff. Yeah. And this is something that I was talking to my friend about too. And it's that I'm really good at quote unquote discipline. And one of the things that I've learned, one of the things that I find um, is that as soon as you get comfortable, if you're open to the universe to like grow, they will call in either a friendship or a relationship that will bring in the just right challenge that if you said yes to would, would fucking transform you. And so I became the king of discipline for a couple of years when I was single as fuck. Cause it's really easy as a man to be super disciplined if you're not in love. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I called in a relationship where her medicine was no discipline. What happens if you have no plans? And at first I was so resistant to it. And I would justify my resistance of the unknown where the blade gets sharpened by saying like, no, I'm dedicated to my dharma. And so I'm not leaving the yeah. house. I'm not staying out late, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But what I have found in dancing with her over the last like year is some of the most beautiful moments that add to my understanding of the world and to my work comes from the random midnight or 1 a.m. evening on a, on a Wednesday. Or the once in a blue moon, like we stayed up until the fucking sun rose. Mm-hmm. And also like coming back to your discipline, recharged by one deep act of unknownness. It's changed the way that I approach my quote unquote discipline. And that that came to mind when you were like, you know, where you sharpen the blade is in the unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my challenge is, um, Again, coming out of a very structured, you know, my my most formative years were at boarding school. Mm. And that's time is scheduled out to the 15 minute, you know, you had uh-huh. to be at certain places at certain times. So I'd like to have the logistics sorted out and I know where I need to be at a certain place, certain time. And then there's the question of, well, how do you get into flow state? Right. And then how do you sort of embrace the the spontaneity and that's still something I'm working on. But yeah, I agree. I mean, there's, there's some special times to be uh, experienced by just having no schedule and just yeah. taking you where the energy, you know, pushes you. So yeah, consciously scheduling that in might be a way to know where you need to be, what you need to do. Uh, and sort of <laughs> <laughs> one foot in, one foot out. So <laughs> Yes. I actually schedule time on my calendar for no scheduling of time. There you go. And that's like the only way they'll have empty space. <laughs> I mean, at least where I'm at right now. So you just went through um, a men's weekend mm-hmm. where you were one of the facilitators. Is this the first time that you have, like, without being a part of an organization or something, that you, like, ran a retreat? No. 
the I mean, I was involved with numerous men's circles in the Bay Area, mm. um, led a couple of those. Um, I guess, you know, unassociated to an organization. I did one as I came into uh, Fit for Service last spring, I had a handful of folks come out to Washington State. To, oh, yeah, that's to Bainbridge. Right. Yeah. And we had about 10, 10 folks out there and I employed all my knowledge and I was like production team of one serving 10 people and Not gave, easy. gave them an experience. So, yeah. Um, How many days? It was again, Thursday night through Sunday. Alone? God damn. So yeah, we had, you know, conversation and communication skills and then dove into holotropic breath work mm -hmm. and then did some like journaling and artwork and things. I'm a big fan in. of journaling. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> yeah. um, and we um, then went into some other ceremony on, on Saturday evening and then came out of that on and then just did debrief and more circling, what we called circling. So the, yeah, I would love for you to like share kind of what the container for circling looks like. Well, very similar to the Arte experience. So it's it's um, being with somebody exactly where they're where they are, and just being curious about where they're at, and then describing back to them that space between the two of you, like what's occurring in that space between you. Hmm. So it's being observant in terms of how they're showing up, how you're responding to it, what unfolds in terms of insights and, you know, you know how to ask the curious question, right? So it's it's about that, the joy in just humaning with people. It feels like the fundamental thing that makes that different than just having a good conversation is the meta commentary on what's happening between the two after some back and forths have happened? Exactly. Okay. So it's um, it's a little esoteric, but it's also happening in community. Yeah. So it's multiple people. So you have multiple mirrors to, re mm -hmm. to reflect back. So you can have some corroboration as to what's occurring in the moment. Um, so you're not sort of off in like some fantasy and some delusion. I really feel like we're meant to be together and that you're my business partner. You should give me all your money. Like, no. I feel that so deeply in my <laughs> five-dimensional body right now. Oh, yeah. That's five-dimensional body is, <laughs> yeah. is, is a new term for me. So I'm still like I'm training wheels on that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that is interesting, and this might be a complete motherfucking tangent that we don't need to go down, but... One of the oldest archetypes that you, that we see expressed in every cultural story is some motif of the energy of back in the past, it used to be perfect. The Garden of Eden, Atlantis, whatever. And now it's just fucked. If we could just get back to how it used to be in the past, we'll be saved. There's also stories of after this life, it'll be perfect. And if we just do the right things, and then we get to this place, and then it's perfect. Both of those stories fundamentally imply there's a way to end the game and for everything just to be, oh, okay, we're done. Mm -hmm. I see the whole 5D story as a new manifestation of this archetypical energy, which is like, there's a, just a couple of things we got to do and we're going to get to a finish line. And once we get to the finish line, it's done and we won and it's good and there's no more. 
And there's a part of me, because I've been to a couple of places on a couple of different medicines a couple of times where it's like, the way more terrifying what feels like capital T truth is the eternity, eternities for eternity. And there is no done. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so the well, it's like the thing doesn't... men in black pen that erases your memory. Right. And that's basically when you happens when you re-enter this world, <laughs> this reality. So yeah. when you when you birth and you come into this world, it's like click. Yeah. There's actually okay, so this is wild, and I don't think I've told this story yet. Um there's so uh Plato is regarded as like the top, like the king philosopher of Western culture, like him, Socrates, Aristotle are kind of regarded as like the motherfucking kings that kind of set the culture for Western culture. And Plato's magnum opus, like his major, like crowning achievement was the Republica. And that was his attempt to try to articulate how do you create the perfect culture. All philosophy. And then the last chapter of this fucking book, I don't know how I'd never learned about this until last year. It's a myth. And it's this really weird out of place myth compared to everything else in the book. And, uh, it's called the myth of Ur, E-R. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you'll indulge me, it'll take like five to eight minutes, but it's fucking okay. dope. Right. Okay, so uh, there's, there's this soldier that was deemed by the gods as being worthy of being able to see what happens after you die. And so he dies and his soul goes to what's called the middle realm. And it's this realm where there's four judges and there's also four doors. There's two doors that lead down to the lower realm, that's earth, and there's two doors that lead to the upper realm, and that's what they call heaven. Any soul that dies from the upper world or the lower world has to come to this middle world, and the judges basically assess whether or not they need to learn more wisdom. Mm -hmm. If they need to learn more wisdom, they have to go to earth, because that's where you go to learn wisdom. If they've acquired enough wisdom where where they can just spend a lifetime enjoying themselves, they get to go to heaven. But once you spend a lifetime in heaven, you kind of get dumb. You don't acquire wisdom because there's no challenge. So you eventually have to go back down to the lower earth and it's this whole big thing. Every round, the souls that are judged that have to go down to the lower earth, they have to go on this pilgrimage where they have to go to the, it's described in the book as a rainbow tower. There's a rainbow tower with a throne embedded in the middle of the rainbow tower. And that's where the mother of fate sits you know because in greek mythology there's nine fates and they all like are different muses for the different arts this is the mother of fates and her name's anaki or ananki so all these souls go on this pilgrimage to this fucking rainbow tower with this throne in it and they arrive at the throne and there's a male prophet to the right of and this symbolism i don't understand it but they're very particular when they tell the story so i think it means something Mm -hmm. um the mother of the muses talks directly to the prophet, won't talk to the actual souls. And the the prophet arranges the souls in an order and then presents in front of them all these golden threads. And the golden threads are different fates that the souls get to choose. Um, The soul that gets to choose first spent a whole lifetime in heaven, no wisdom. He grabbed the first or it grabbed the first fate that it saw that had the maximal amount of pleasure 
the one rule was whatever thread you touched, you had to go live out of that life. And he found out only later that um, to get the maximum amount of pleasure and uh, power, he would become a dictator. But a part of his fate is he would have to eat his children. Sorry, bro. Mm. And then everyone picks their fates. And the very last one to pick is Odysseus. And Odysseus is the dude who, through any Greek story, has gone through the most suffering and has acquired the, the most, most wisdom. wisdom. Yeah. And the way they tell the stories, he takes a really long time to look at all the fates. And he eventually picks one where it's just a farmer. He's going to live a healthy life. He's going to raise a family, but it's not going to be political. It's not going to be exciting, but he's going to see wildlife and grow beautiful food. Mm -hmm. Once they all pick their fates, they have to go in a cave underneath this throne to the river of forgetting. Because apparently to remember your fate makes your soul too heavy and you can't move into the lower world. So you drink from this river of forgetting. And then once you've adequately forgot, the mother of fates gives you a daemon. And this is where we get the oh, word daemon. Yeah. And your daemon is your guardian spirit that remembers your fate that travels with you to earth. Okay. One of the greatest philosophers ever in his magnum opus of philosophy ends it with the fucking myth that introduces the idea of judgment, fate, uh, heaven, reincarnation, and the daemon. It's your whole world. <laughs> it's like, what the <laughs> fuck? I don't know how we got on that story, but I was really excited to tell it. But it, it blows my mind. Oh, and... Are you familiar with the immortality key? No. Uh, it's such a weird story. There's a lawyer that went on Joe Rogan that for the last like 12 years, he's never done a psychedelic, but he's completely obsessed with basically being the modern historian to really crack the code of the Eleusinian mysteries mm -hmm. and essentially provided more proof than any book that's ever been written that um, all of these mystery cults or mystery religions were mixing herbs into wine <clears throat> into such a way to produce a psychedelic effect mm -hmm. and that almost all the greatest cultural mover and shakers including plato plato spent 13 years in egypt learning from the mystery religions where they were drinking the psychedelic brew right and so um his understanding of the afterlife that myth might be straight up from from ceremony yeah 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 well isn't it interesting <laughs> i mean it's there are no red herrings right so as you said there's a golden thread you pull on that and all our stories are interconnected so it's interesting to me that such a um influential source of information for modern civilization it, and it also underscores like how important it is for us to reacquaint ourselves with the natural world and you know you hear i think the phrase is you know in time of peace carry water chop wood in time of water you know carry water chop wood it's like whatever you're doing i probably messed that quote up but <laughs> you get I the same thing like, like the same you do the same thing it's like it's yeah. very basic um principles by which we need to live by and we kind of make it all complicated um and it's interesting time in terms of 
how much uh, civilized society, quote unquote, is fast it's moving as a right. result, the current in which we, you know, exist in terms of technology and the advances that we're making through technology are just moving so fast. Yeah. It's going right. to, that, that for, river of forgetfulness, yeah. that's a fire hose. I mean, it's getting, we're drinking from it too much. Yeah, one of the things that has really been highlighted for me is uh, we're a culture obsessed with optimization. But what are we optimizing for? The trajectory we're on is destroy the planet, extinct ourselves. And so any action that we do that is just to optimize and not to re-aim, like we're just killing ourselves more quickly. And the like the frenetic pace of technologic culture is so different than the pace of nature. And it's why it feels like mushrooms demands for the monkey to go outside. Like it's so hard to be indoors and to be around the like, like we can hear the hum of the refrigerator right now. If we were on enough mushrooms, we could hear the fucking electricity and the lights. Mm -hmm. And there's just this call to like get out of the frenetic technological churning and being nature. But then it also reminds me of the like <clears throat> garden of Eden thing where it's like, if you think you're going to save or help by just being in nature and not learning how to wrangle, you know, Apollo's horses of technology, I think you're naive and it's, it's not helping the collective. Like it really feels like the call is <clears throat> how can we get the technology to bow to nature? Mm -hmm. well, in service of yeah 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 i think um boyd vardy and his mm. mission in terms of restoration and getting folks more tuned in to what that looks like for them you know then they have like this i think it's just again broadening one's you know vision and having that um wider perception of the important things and then how to use the stuff that we're have available to us through technology to then apply to what we really want to achieve, which is a restoration, you know, yeah. and getting back into resonance. I mean, Kyle's talk back in Tahoe about the importance of resonance and the, my experience this past weekend in terms of the, the sound balls in terms of it really landed with me this weekend in terms of what's your hurts what's your natural hurts as a as a being that's made up of atoms that resonate at a certain frequency and you have harmonics inside of you so it's um an interesting space to take a look at in terms of where yeah. we, we could then then get back in resonance and harmony with the natural world what do you see going forward as the big call for you about what to change in your life to bring you into more resonance accepting of my own natural talents and my own inclinations in terms of what my interest you know, draws me toward um it's so wild to really feel into because i've i've had this for <clears throat> most of my life until i met aubrey and kyle and they really kind of demanded me to look at it was false humility is arrogance and like for me my humility most of my life has been false. I've I've known that I've had the sauce and I have never felt safe to express it basically. Mm -hmm. So I I played extra low. Mm -hmm. But with this like kind of like resentful ego pulsing in the background. 
it's been a tough lesson to embrace and to like walk the line of potentially being called arrogant. Like that felt like such a terrible thing to be accused of. Yeah. I have a little experiment to do with you. You want to, yeah. you want to try it? So I listened to your recap from Sultara mm. and some stuff became very present to me. Mm-hmm. So I have, I mentioned already that I, um, the person over my left shoulder, Deb, sees me as a talisman. And I brought some stuff with me. So I just want to take note of how you're feeling as I hand this to you. Because this, based on your description of your trip report, I created a talisman for you. Wow. And this amulet at the bottom is a dragon. Oh my God. The stones are petasite with jade, this wow. little two skulls, a little knot of memento mori. <laughs> and I wanted to give that to you. Wow, brother, thank you. Oh my God. Now, I want you to, uh, you feeling good? Yeah. <laughs> I'm also passing off to Godzi here, a velvet bag, which contains two other things in it. So I want you to reach in there and get those. Damn. This is officially the dopest necklace and I have a lot of necklaces, but this is my favorite. So that's a bracelet to go alongside it. And that includes some sapphires and some other special stones. Brother, thank you so much, my God. So if you don't really want to wear the mala, you've got the bracelet with similar stones. Now this one that he's pulling out, this one is super special. Oh my. This one, this bracelet's for your daughter. I see your brother. you man so i invite you to put that on your altar (sighs) oh Oh my god this is so special So, yeah, what were you saying? What was the question? I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't the question at all. <sighs> I was just saying that, you know, as a father and a father-to-be, you know, I, I offer those as a reminders of the good times to come. This is so fucking perfect. We're going to have to end the podcast here. <sighs> Thank you so much. You're most welcome. I fucking love you. I truly appreciate the work that you've done on yourself to be able to show up to the community the way that you have. And I'm so glad that you're one of the Lighthouse members and I fucking love you. I love you too, brother. All right, we're back uh, because he has more gifts and um, I'm- This is more about your joy. And I know you teach 
so many people about, and I need to take the lesson too, about the joy and the benefit of journaling. Mm. And I remember it like one little comment mm. and that. You son of a bitch. It's for you. I don't know if you have one yet. A beautiful motherfucking fountain pen. God, you are a sweet man. Wow. God damn it, this is sexy. Whoa. So it's a travel size fountain pen that you can throw in your bag. This is journal. my wand of light that I will use to journal. There you go. About the manifestation of my daughter. Dude, I'm going to look at this and hold this every day for the next however many years. Oh. Thank you for seeing the myth that makes me men and for giving me a talisman. Like this is one of the most important things I've ever received. It's my honor and you're most welcome. It's a, it's a new practice for me to really believe in the power of, you know, the things that I create. I think um, if I were to pass a lesson on is to listeners to understand that in them, you keep on talking about Damon and Dharma and it's, the thing that creates joy in you that also gets amplified when you pass it on. Yeah. And so, you know, every hour that I spend, you know, crafting and creating and thinking about and learning about the natural qualities of stones and crystals and whatnot, it sounds woo woo, but then when you get into it and you see the pictures and you see the beauty of the natural world and what it means and how they're used and how they can be put together in a recipe and and that becomes an object that you put your intention into. And it changes people's lives. It does. It does. And at the fast pace that society is moving, we forget the beauty and the simple things and the simple act of gifting. Absolutely. The power of gifting. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Fucking love y'all. And we are out. Peace.